You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. Every six weeks, I get to jump on a plane and go to my new second home, Nashville. And when my Southwest flight from Boston lands, it's a nonstop week of interviews for J.C. and me. And just when we think we've experienced the best one ever, another country music icon comes along and blows us away. That's what happened when we pulled into Music Row to interview legendary producer Tony Brown. PLA Media welcomed us into their conference room, and there he was. A Grammy-winning pillar of the country music scene for 40 years, Tony got his start as a session player and then became an A&R guy who rose to president of MCA Records and co-founder of Universal South Records, a super producer for Reba, Vince Gill, George Strait, Lionel Richie, Sarah Evans, the list goes on. He was so open and so wise, so generous with his time and his sage advice for anyone in this industry. Pay attention to trends, but never be a follower. Be a leader. Push the envelope, but don't let it break. (laughs) I like to stay in front of the curve, but I never like to be too cool for the room. With 100 number one singles and record sales exceeding 100 million, this man could be too cool for the room if he felt like it but he's not. Tony Brown is a living, breathing fountain of knowledge. I pressed record on an interview filled with hits and history. I asked Tony to take us back to when he discovered his gift for making music. He sat back and this incredible country music success story came to life. Well, my father was an evangelist, so I was raised in the church. We had a family singing group. I learned that I could play piano. I had an ear. So my father played piano and the family sang. So the lady at church taught me a song to play with the family. And so the next revival service we played in, I played that song. She just showed you how to play the song and you were able like that to play? I found an ear. She said, you have an ear. That's why I I don't read music to this day. You don't read music? No, And uh, so I played one song and the place went crazy. And my first thought was, I need to learn two songs. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good feeling. Oh, wait, so I moved to town here. I wanted to be a session player, which is guys that play on records. Most people don't know who those people are, but there's like maybe 10 or 12 guys that play on 90% of all the records you hear on the radio. It's almost like unsung heroes, yeah, it is, right? You know, They're behind you, the scenes. A lot of musicians that do sessions will go out on tour with someone like, say, a Keith Urban or like with Elvis. He had a lot of great session players out with him. But some session players are afraid if they leave town, people will think that they're not doing sessions anymore, so they're afraid to go do that. And I told uh, one of those guys, I said, he had a chance to play with Keith Urban, and I said, man, go. There's nothing more rewarding than finishing a solo and the crowd goes crazy. That's something you don't experience in a, in a recording studio. And so go do it. Plus, usually those guys, they pay them a lot of money, you know. You were born and raised in North Carolina. You yes. just mentioned that church was a big part of your life. Can you? My only life. It was, it was, it was 24-7, it. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't do anything wrong in that family, I guess, right? No, you sure couldn't. In fact, you know, I, I got my first whipping. I started a fire in a barn playing with matches, and I said I didn't. And my father said, I didn't whip you for starting the fire. I whipped you for lying about it. <laughs> 
When you were a little boy and you yes. started showing this ability to play the piano and learn by ear and really becoming musical, was there somebody in your life who said, hey, Tony, you, you could be good at this? Yeah, it was the, the, the lady at church who played piano. I started making friends with, with um, other musicians, piano players at churches, you know, and, and every kind of church would have different kind of musicians, like Pentecostal churches would have, like, better musicians than Baptist churches. <laughs> and and I, I wasn't into... I'm a Catholic girl. I don't know well, about you this know, stuff. And, I, and uh, uh, I wasn't into playing, like, pipe organ. I wanted to play piano. And so... But the, the church thing is completely uh, shaped my, my career. Take me back to the musical explosion which was the Beatles, the British Invasion, Motown, rock and roll. Here you are, you're in North Carolina, you're playing the piano in churches. How were you influenced? When I was a kid at home, I wasn't allowed to listen to anything but gospel music. So the first record I ever bought was George Beverly Shea singing How Great Thou Art. And then by the time I got in high school, I was living away from home in Durham, North Carolina. That's when the Beatles came out, and the, the people I lived with had a daughter who was a cheerleader, and she was always playing the Beatles. But I wasn't even into it because I, I just didn't get it, you know? The first time I got into Elvis was about like around in the 70s when he cut Suspicious Minds. Oh, yeah, because that was a crossover success, right? That was the biggest hit he ever had. Yeah. Nobody, everybody thinks Love Me Tender or Hound Dog. The biggest hit he ever had was Suspicious Minds. It went around the world. So I discovered him then. So that when got I, your attention. Oh, well, just the sound of it was big, you know. Yeah. And so I knew he was, he was a celebrity. I got my job with Elvis because I played with J.D. Sumner in the Stamps Quartet. So some, when people say, how did you get your job with Elvis? I think they think I'm going to say, I was a great session player on records, and he heard about me. No, it was because I knew J.D. Sumner and I played with him. So, uh, but you know, isn't that such an example, Tony, of of what a small community oh, yes. this is? So check it out. We spoke to Larry Strickland. We spoke to T.G. Shepard, who, of course, you know, spent a lot of yeah, his Elvis life. Him, Elvis yeah. took him right yeah. under his wing. It's interesting when I hear J.D. Sumner, when I hear the Stamps Quartet, the first thing I think about is, okay, we're going to have an Elvis connection, right? <laughs> yes. Tell me about the first time you met Elvis. Uh, I was playing with J.D. Summer and the Stamps Quartet in 1969, and uh, Elvis, when he came out of retirement, the first thing he did was he played Las Vegas at the International Hotel. So J.D. Sumner managed to route our uh, tour through Las Vegas, and so we were there that night. He got to go to the show because Elvis and the Colonel had invited all the big stars, you know whoever was a big star, and, El and J.D. was a big star to Elvis, so J.D. got to go. We sat in the bus. <laughs> you had to stay in the bus? We had to stay in the bus outside the International. And then after the show, J.D. Sumner came back to the bus and said, okay, guys, one of you get to go with me backstage to meet Elvis. And I won. We flipped a coin and I won. So I got to go with him backstage, and I remember the first time I laid eyes on Elvis, I thought he was like the coolest, most beautiful human being I'd ever seen. He was like the perfect man, perfect hair. He was tall. He was slender. 
it was just cool, you know, because uh, most people in gospel music aren't cool, but he was cool, and uh, that's when he first started wearing the jumpsuits. Although now, as I got have gotten older, I, I look back on the days in the beginning when he wore those uh, vintage jackets that he would just pick out, you know. Yeah. He looked cool back then. He was just cool from the get. He had style, big time. You played piano for Elvis. I did. I played. Uh, I was his last piano player. I was with him in Indianapolis, Indiana, on June the twenty-sixth. Was his last concert, and I played that show with him. What was it like to accompany him? Well, you know, I was as excited to play with that band, to be worthy of playing with his band, Ronnie Tut, James Burton, Ronnie Jerry Tut on Schiff. drums, right? Yes, and and then I knew that Elvis was a celebrity, but to be worthy of playing in that band was a big deal for me. I remember the first night I, I was playing with him, the rush, you know, he came, he came, on, came on with the uh, 2001 Space Odyssey. And so you do that, and then Ronnie Tut goes into this big jungle rhythm and we get into C.C. Ryder. It is a rush, it is a bigger rush than any high you've ever had on pot or anything. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a rush. It is that way every night. You know? 1976, just one year before Elvis dies, you are part of the Jungle Room Sessions yes. at Graceland. Yes. Take us all back into that room. Well, that, you know, I had never played on an, an Elvis record uh, back in the days. I played on that concert. It was filmed for CBS. But he decided he wanted to record some songs in the Jungle Room. So we go up to the Graceland, and if you've been to, the, to Graceland, the jungle room's not very big. So they got a grand piano sitting in there, and Ronnie Tut, his big drum kit. We're all just crammed into the jungle room. And Elvis is standing right next to the piano. And so the last big hit he ever had from the studio, from those sessions, was a song called Way Down. And it had a boogie-woogie part in the left hand. And... Elvis loved the deep end. He, he liked J.D. because he was the bass singer, but he sure. also loved the bottom end of a piano. So as I'm playing the the boogie-woogie part, he's got his hand down on the piano over my hand. I'm having to play around his hand. He's in my way. <laughs> Elvis, you're you're yeah. you're cramping my style over but, here. But you know, you, you just you just go with it. You, you go just with go it. with it. I went back there recently for my book. I got a book out, and and I went there just to revisit the Jungle Room. Right. And I also forgot how tacky that room was. <laughs> That's the <laughs> reason mean, why they call it the Jungle Room. Oh man, you know. So you captured your Elvis years in this beautiful coffee table book, which you've shown to us here. And it's called Elvis Straight to Jesus, historic behind-the-scenes snapshots. You witnessed history. I did. You know, and the reason I called it that was when I got my book deal, they wanted to call it Tony Brown Looks at Nashville. And I went, no, nobody knows who I am. So the picture's got to be shot where I look like I'm somebody. And then the title has to be something like, what is this about? Right. I said, basically, my life began in the church. And as a musician, the biggest artist I ever played for was Elvis Presley. And as a record producer, the biggest artist I ever produced was George Strait. So basically, my life was about the church, Elvis, and George Strait. So Melissa, my manager, said, let's call it Elvis Strait to Jesus. <laughs> 
I love it. It's a beautiful book. It's available on Amazon.com. And it's really a glimpse into an incredible story and into the history of rock and roll. You are exceptional at so many parts and pieces of the musical experience. So I'm going to ask you a few questions about each part. Okay. What is the skill set you need to be a great session musician? Well, I played on a lot of records, but on records that I was kind of cast in the band, you know, but to be a, a great session player, to play on anybody's record, like what I came to town to do, David Foster has a quote, good is the enemy of great. You've got to be great. You can't be good. You've got to be great. Because you've got to be able to turn on a dime. You know, on sessions, I'll have a guitar player, I say, do a Keith Richards kind of thing. Steve Vai or Jeff Beck. And, and, and they, he gets it. And they got to go do it. Or Mark Knopfler, you know. And, and they just got to do it around the spot. And most of these guys, they can. They can turn on a dime. If they choke on you, the session's kind of over. You know, it costs a lot of money. Time is what costs money at making records. Fill in the blank. Never do blank in a session. Never choke. When I cast the rhythm section, I usually got like a star guitar player or a specific drummer that I know is like the guy. And then the rest of the guys have to compliment. But everybody plays an important part, so nobody stands out with uh, arrogance or ego. The band is the band. There's no stars in the band. And everybody just has to do their part. And Compliment each other. That's right, and don't choke. Don't choke. <laughs> Through the 1980s, you really started to hone in on producing. So let's talk about that for a while. What is it about that role in the creative process, Tony Brown, that you love so much? Well, you know, when I came to town, I was, I was a musician, so I, I was a creative person. So when I realized that I had the brains to realize that I, my taste was better than my abilities... I should. I wanted to be in the creative part of the business, so I, I became an A and R person for a record label, which is the artist and repertoire, which is the person that finds the artist, signs them to the label, finds the songs for the artist. So you're still in the creative part. You feel like you're part of it, and then when you become a producer, I found out like I hired piano players that I idolize. You know, like I would hire someone from LA to fly in to play on a song. And because I had knowledge about my opinion about that person's style, I learned to live through the musicians I hired. And even with guitar players and stuff, you know, I hired Leland Sklar and Russ Kunkel, who played on all those... Uh, Eagles, Linda Ronstadt. Ronstadt and James Taylor. And we, and we become good friends. But just to hire them and then play for you was like, I, I don't know. It, so you had fan moments, are you telling me? Yeah, I was big time. But, you know, I felt part of it. Yeah. And, and then I would give them direction. They would, they would want direction. And I was going, I can't believe I'm giving Leland Sklar direction. And he's <laughs> taking it. But uh, yeah, so I, I really, people ask me all the time, do I miss playing? No, I do not. Uh, because when you don't play, you kind of lose your chops. And then I, I just lived through my musicians. So I, I've been playing for the last 25 years through players that I hire. 
Give us some highlights of projects that you've worked on as a producer for Reba, for George Strait, Vince Gill, Trisha Yearwood, Patty Loveless. This list goes on and on and on. But is there anything that comes to the top of your mind about a moment when everybody was in the pocket? It was the most exciting recording thing you've ever been through. Well, you know, when I first came to MCA Records, I was the low guy on the totem pole. And so when my boss, Jimmy Bowen, left, who produced Reba and George and everybody, the next record George was going to make was Pure Country with a movie. The movie was not a big hit, but the record sold six million records. And up to that point... I crossed my heart. Right. Up to that point, George had sold a million, but never sold six. And so I cut my first album with George Strait. I was hoping I wouldn't screw it up. I wanted to sell six million records. And just cutting that record... I thought I would be like freaked out, scared, but it, I wasn't. I just found I fell right into it so good. And I found that the musician part of me makes players on the session comfortable with the music producer. And then uh, the artists also feel like a little more attached to me than they do a guy that wears a suit. You know? I think that's because you can walk the walk and talk the yeah, talk. Yeah, I, I, I can talk, I can talk musician lang- language. And my first Reba record... I was kind of freaked out about that, and she said, do you know the song Fancy? I said, yes, I love it. She said, me too. Jimmy Bowen wouldn't let me cut that. Will you cut that on me? I said, hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She said, here's your one chance, Fancy, don't let me down. Here's your one chance, Fancy, I'm so glad because that's you know it was only a top ten record, but it's the biggest hit she's ever had. You became the president of MCA Nashville in the 1990s. Right. What is star power? How do you recognize it? When what I, does it look like to you? No, you someone... say star power. I mean, you know, you, I don't think you really become it. big stars until like when you, when you sign artists to a label, you have new artists. They have a few hits. Then you have, then they have a big hit and a gold record. They're developing. Then they have another gold record. Then they're established. And then they get to that level where they become superstars. And not every act makes that. I could name some, but I won't because I will not hurt anybody's feelings. But <laughs> there's some people who get to that established level and make a good living. You know, if you read Forbes every year, that they always say the top money-making artists in country music. It's usually like Carrie Underwood, Taylor Swift, Toby Keith, Eric Church, Luke Bryan, and they all make about 30 to $40 million a year. When an established artist can make five to 10, I mean, that's not chopped liver. <laughs> but, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's like uh, in, in the beginning, all these new artists that are developing, people think they're stars. They're, they're not making any money. I had a chance to talk to David Foster years ago, and I asked him the star power question. His answer is something that I've used for 20 years. He said, when a star walks in the room, they bring with them a certain energy into the room. They couldn't hide anywhere in this room if they tried, because they have a megawatt. Maybe that's the Elvis moment that you had, a beautiful person, a shine, something like that. And then when they leave, 
they take that energy with them. I was good friends with Johnny Cash. He walked into the room, the, the temperature changed. Elvis the same way. Yeah. Uh, George Strait is a different kind of guy. He walks into the room, and you might not even notice him. Uh, I remember we were recording down at Key West in Jimmy Buffett's uh, studio, and his studio was right in on the harbor. There were all the yachts park, and where George parked his yacht. So me and George are sitting outside in folding chairs outside the studio because the studio is kind of hot. And uh, a couple walks by, and this lady says to George, Sir, someone told me George Strait's in there recording a record. And uh, George said, I was just in there. I sure didn't see him. <laughs> and her husband said, I told you he wasn't in there. And as they walked off, George says, Sometimes it's good not to be recognizable. <laughs> but, you know, George, George is one of those non-star stars, but then there's people like, like Elvis and like Cash. And uh, I met Celine Dion last year. She was on my bucket list. And, you know, David Foster put out, produced all those great records on her. And I was just beside myself. She's not what you think of. A, She's a, tiny. A beautiful, beautiful woman like Giselle Bündchen or that kind of person, but she's just gorgeous because she's the greatest pop singer that has ever lived. <laughs> Lionel Richie's album, Tuskegee. Oh, man. Featuring duets with Blake Shelton, Jason Aldean, Darius Rucker, Tim McGraw, Jimmy Buffett, Little Big Town. Shania Twain. Shania, Kenny Rogers, Willie Nelson. My question for you as the producer of that record is, were those duets done face-to-face or were they done remotely? Lionel really wanted to do these live because we filmed it all, too. We yeah. filmed it. And everybody that came in were prepared. You know, like every, I was go- wondering how it was going to be because sometimes you do that. The thought, the theory is good, but the reality is like a train wreck. Yes. But it was magic. You know, uh, and the first thing we did was Darius Rucker. And I never worked with Darius Rucker. For me, it was fun because I never worked with Jason Aldean before. And they all walked in and said, and I think Darius said, Lionel, I did stuck on you in my set every night for 10 years. So I know this song like the back of my hand. Uh, did but, you feel like you were capturing lightning in a bottle oh, or something? Oh, yeah. You know, and it made me realize, too, how great those songs are. I almost turned the project down because I was thinking, why would you want to redo those great records? The players in Nashville just came to the party, and it was fun, and everybody... Love Lionel, and Lionel loved all of them. And, and it was just, it was the love fest. And I think it's one of my favorite records I've ever done. I mean, the Blake Shelton cut is so incredible. Lionel Richie came to the radio station in Boston, and my program director said to him, hey, you know, she sings. So here I am interviewing Lionel Richie live (laughs) on the radio on the number one FM in Boston when they start playing the track for Endless Love 
my producer comes over and all of a sudden in my headphones, I'm hearing the track and Lionel is standing across from me and he goes, and now Candy and I are going to sing Endless Love live on the radio. So did you? Yeah, what else am I going to do? <laughs> I was begging God to please you know, not let me screw that up. But he's such, he's such, such a, a good guy. He's such an accessible guy. You know, the first thing that I noticed about him, I felt like I'd known him all my yes, life. Yes, he's got that. He's yes. got that feeling. But I do have one more little story to tell you about an exciting thing was about 10 years ago, I got a call. My assistant said, there's a guy named Jay Landers on the phone. Uh, Barbara Streisand wants you to come out and cut a song on her. And I thought it was my friends punking me, right? So I got on the phone and Jay Landers, who is still with, with uh, Streisand, he said, Barbara wants you to come out. She's cutting an album of love songs and she wants you to come out and cut this song on her that you cut on George Strait. And I was thinking, George Strait, Barbara Streisand, this doesn't make any sense. And George had cut this song called We Must Be Loving Right. It was kind of a Vegasy kind of AC, adult contemporary kind of song. He said that James Brolin played that song by George on their first date, and she wants to cut it with the guy that recorded George. So I fly out to L.A., and I took a steel player with me and, and a, a fiddle player with me, and I, I'm going. I can't. I'm. I'm going to freak out when she walks in the, in the control room. I'm just going to like melt. Well, she was really late getting there, and everybody kept telling me she's not going to show up. You know, I said she keeps. She kept calling, saying, "I'm so sorry. Should have started sooner from the house." You know, so, L.A. traffic. What's so a girl she, to do? So she finally gets there, and we cut the track, and it's so good. And she was so sweet to me, and the record turned out great. It might be the way. you hold me tight I don't know the reason but I'm believing we must be loving right Does she take direction well? She took direction well and when she left I told the guys I said man she was so nice to me and they said it's probably because you're from Nashville I'm going, no, I think it's because I treated her nice with respect. Oh, my goodness. It made me realize that anytime you're doing something, do it good. That's a proud moment on my little resume there. It wasn't a single or anything, but I cut. I worked in the studio with Barbara Streisand, who next to Celine Dion. Celine and Barbara are the two best pop singers ever lived, I think. For young singers... Not a lot of experience in the studio. You were talking about how time is expensive. What is the key to a great recording session? You're a new artist. You're walking into a studio. You come prepared. Believe it or not, there are a lot of artists who don't come prepared. And you come prepared, and it doesn't mean you're going to record that vocal that's going to be used on the record, but you got to sing so the band can play to you. So you got to know the song good enough so they can play to you. And then later on, as a producer, I'll take that artist and we'll sing vocals separately away from everybody so they can really concentrate. Running MCA Nashville for two decades, co-founding Universal South Records, and now running your own Tony Brown Enterprises. This music business has changed so much. Think about it since you came to Nashville. We hear songs differently now. You know, It's not like you hear a song from the radio for the first time. It, all different digital platforms. There used to be so many record labels. Now there are only just a few. 
Where do you see music's next chapter? When I first came to town, it used to be ears first and eyes second. You know, you'd hear the song on the radio, and then you'd see the person on TV. But now it's eyes first and ears second because on social media, people on YouTube, they see like Kobe uh, Calais came from there, Amy Winehouse, uh, Florida Georgia Line came out of social media. Social media has changed everything. Everything. People get really bored quickly. They're putting EPs out now, which is like six song albums. And it used to, when I was it first got into the business, we put an EP out on an act we didn't believe in because we didn't want to spend too much money. Now, your big stars are putting an EP out. Six months later, put another one. Then they'll put them together and make a, a full record. It's just the delivery of music is different. And nobody wants to own it. They just want to stream it. I always say the only way to enjoy this business is, is to be idealistic. But the only way to stay in it is to be realistic. What are you most proud of? I'm, I'm just most proud of that I had success. And you know, more than the money, I told somebody, I said, you know what makes really thrills me? I get more out of somebody at a mall, a stranger, they go, did you do that George Strait record, I Can Make Cheyenne? I go, yeah. That's my favorite George Strait record. That's better than a royalty statement. I get I get a million dollars, you know? Just doing something that's you, that you made an impact on somebody's life. That's the most proudest thing is people come up to me and say, you did Steve Earle or you did Lyle Lovett. Man, it changed my life. And so that's what I'm most proud of. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in country music has been? To pay attention. Pay attention to trends, but never be a follower. Be a leader. Push the envelope, but don't let it break. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I like to stay in front of the curve, but I never like to be too cool for the room. Tony Brown, uh, what a legend, and you're so kind. Thank you so much for having me here and for accepting our interview for Country Music Success well, let Stories. Me tell you, let me give you a compliment. You know, I do a lot of interviews over the years. An interviewer is a gift as well, and not everyone has that gift. You have that. And uh, you keep, it's like we're just chatting as opposed to, like, you know, interviewing. It's like we're chatting in the living room. Or something. And I brought you chocolate chip cookies. Absolutely. <laughs> What a story. Hi, I'm JC Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. You just heard the remarkable story of a man whose entire life has been spent making the music that you listen to on the radio every single day. He really is a superstar. I asked Tony about what a new artist should do to hit the ground running when they first get to Nashville. I think I would tell any artist, it's really, Jay, it's about the song. You got to find the song. If you don't write it, you got to find it. And if you go, but how can I get a new song if I'm nobody? I go, you just got to start networking around town. No writers, go have coffee with them. Find musicians, make friends with musicians. Get to know all the people in town. And then somebody will say, you know what? You need to meet Luke Laird. And uh, we're going to have coffee tomorrow morning. And then you go meet with Luke Laird. Who, if you know that name, he writes about 90% of the songs today. Yeah. So you go meet with that guy, then you write the song with him. But I got a quote in my book that somebody said, if you have a number one record, you have an experience. And if you have an audience, you have a career. The hits make you famous. And then your, your talent and your art, if you're good at it, 
will give you a career to the end till you die, you know, like Kenny Rogers. It's true. A song can make or break your chances to get heard on the radio and to connect with your fans. If you aren't a writer yourself, you might be wondering how on earth am I going to locate a song or a writer strong enough to give me a three minute masterpiece to skyrocket my career? I've got a couple ideas on how you can make this happen. Tip number one, go to writer's rounds. One of the best things about Nashville and something that makes it so unique is that on any given night, you can find the greatest songwriters in town performing their music. Venues like The Listening Room and so many others host these events daily. And you can walk in, grab a drink, and sit for a few hours listening to brand new songs from both new and hit songwriters. Do this every chance you get. Next, network with these writers. Go introduce yourself. If you hear something you like, tell the writer. Make them aware that you are working on your debut EP or maybe your debut single, and you are in need of some excellent material. Give them a little background on yourself and let them know that you would love to hear more of their music. Another thing you can do is connect with publishers. If you've been working the scene in Nashville for a little while, then you probably have some connections at publishing houses. This is a great place to find music. Take a meeting with the people that you know and let them know you are looking for songs. They often host pitch meetings for artists and labels looking to find that perfect fit. Next, get in touch with a PRO, a performing rights organization, one like BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, or SOCAN. They're all filled to the brim with amazing songs. Connect with a representative there and see if they can connect you with some of their writers who may have songs worth recording. You can also reach out to NSAI, the Nashville Songwriters Association. Their organization nurtures new and accomplished writers, and they are sure to have some information that will point you in the right direction of finding songs. Finally, give writing a shot. You'll never know if you're any good at it if you never try. And if you don't know where to start, start small. Write down ideas, melodies, or chord changes. Try piecing it together and see where it takes you. If you feel like you might be onto something, connect with some co-writers to help bring your ideas to life. I want to end this segment by sharing a little piece of advice that Tony wanted to pass along. You might want to take notes for this one. It's really about paying attention and following up, getting out there and nudging open doors. You don't kick them open. You just sort of nudge them open and you don't take advantage of the situation. You just you take advantage of the opportunity. Don't take advantage of the situation. Take advantage of the opportunity. Let that sink in for a minute. No matter where you are at in your career, these little tips are sure to help you get your foot in the door or keep it there. More wisdom you can use from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris, inspired by the story of a country music icon, Tony Brown. For a free tip sheet from J.C., just go to candyoterry.com backslash country music podcast and subscribe to J.C.'s YouTube channel for insights and advice on how to make it in Nashville. If you liked country music success stories, please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review. Check out our new website, countrymusicsuccessstories.com, and follow us on social at Candy O'Terry and at JC Don Valeris. 
Our Facebook and IG handles are at Country Music Success Stories. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. Until next time, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars tell you how to make it in Nashville.